0: Our children are dismissed at this time, and you may be seated. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for today, and thank you that we can know for certain that you love us, that there is no doubt in our mind as to the love that was shown for us at Calvary, Lord, that Christ would take on flesh and die in our place. Satisfying your justified anger towards sin, Lord. Thank you that in the cross we see the fullness of your character. Lord, as we look to your word now, we come before you asking for wisdom and guidance, Lord, to understand what we read and to practice what we have learned. Lord, thank you for your word that is the only rule of faith and practice. That Lord, you have spoken to us very clearly. Let us hear what you hear what you tell us, both in our ears and in our hearts, God, that we would practice. What we hear today, for the glory of your name. So fill us, Lord, with your spirit now as we move to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 2008, I'm sorry, 2018, I had the opportunity to go to Senegal. Uh, It was in West Africa, and I spent... Four days in San Louis, and then I spent uh, six days in Dakar, which is in the south. It's the capital city of Senegal. And for lots of reasons, it was really a remarkable trip. I had the opportunity to meet people who love Jesus in a way that is just kind of alien to us here in the West. And I say that because in places like Senegal, Christ is all they have. Christ is, is all they have. They lose everything. When they leave Islam and they receive Christ as Savior, they're ridiculed and they're mocked and people will intentionally make their lives miserable. I heard a story about one man whose mother went to every employer he had and told them that he was Christian so that he would get fired. And then he would move to the next employer, and mom would follow him to the next one and tell him that he was a Christian to get fired. In this way, he really couldn't provide for his family because employers would refuse to keep him. I heard another story where a guy had his entire livestock killed overnight. He was a farmer. That was his main source of income. Every animal he had, he went out in the morning and found them all dead. Uh, We were in Dakar in a Bible study that had to be held in secret because if it was found out that it was being held, it would have been disbanded and the tenants who were hosting that would have been evicted for holding it. We each introduced ourselves, we sat in a, in a big circle and we each introduced ourselves and each story just was sad to hear but also encouraging At the same time, if that makes any sense, because you you really get to see the love these people had for Christ. But one um, in particular stuck out to me. This man was sitting right to my right-hand side here. And he introduced himself and, and gave his name and he shared his conversion story. He was on his way to Mauritania, which is a country just to the north of Senegal, to join the Taliban with the intent of being a suicide bomber. Uh, specifically targeting Christians. So sitting right next to me was a guy who wanted to kill people like me. And yet, when he got to Dakar, he had a dream one night where Jesus said that in the morning he would meet a man from Canada who would explain the gospel to him. He didn't know what the gospel was. He'd never even heard the word. Next morning, he met a Canadian missionary who shared the gospel with him, and he accepted Christ and that was it. He stayed in Dakar. He never made it to Mauritania. Now I have to imagine that this is all very similar to what we see with Paul and Ananias. Ananias is sent to pray for Paul, and for all intents and purposes, Saul was a terrorist. Saul and Paul are the same person, somebody with two names. I'm going to refer to him as Paul for most of the sermon, but we're going to start with Saul here. He was a terrorist by our definition. He was sent and bent on destroying the people of God. But like my friend in Senegal, when he met Jesus, all of that changed. He never actually made it to Damascus to do what he intended to do there. Saul's conversion is one of the more encouraging passages of scripture for many reasons, And while I would love to preach through all of those reasons, I just don't have the time for that. So today, I'm going to look at just a few of them in a message I've titled, Encouraging Lessons from Saul's Conversion. So if you have your Bibles, your tablets, or your smartphones, make your way to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 25, where we see one of the most dramatic turnarounds in church history. You'll remember we met Saul back in Acts 7 at the stoning of Stephen, when he looked on at these events with approval as he was being killed. Now, we don't know how long it's been since that event in our text today, but somewhere in that time, Paul has begun a campaign to eradicate the name of Christ from the earth. The only way he can do that is by killing Christ's followers. Stephen's death caused the church to scatter, and Luke took a little bit of a detour to show us what that looked like in Samaria. The gospel was spreading with much success. People were coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. It was a fantastic thing that was happening. Then he gets whisked away out to the desert. He meets an Ethiopian eunuch, shares the gospel with him. He accepts, and then he's taken off to Azotus. Now, if we go back to Acts 1.8, this is exactly the type of thing that Jesus said was going to happen. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we are seeing this happen, and we will continue to see it happen throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. As Saul watches Stephen die, he had no idea that he would be the single greatest instrument in the gospel being spread across the known world. And he likely would have been infuriated at the concept of something like this. And yet, when someone meets Jesus in a saving sense, who they were before dies, and someone new is born. The very name Saul was trying to kill off would become the name he would courageously preach from the synagogues up to the emperor himself. Saul's conversion cost him a lot, and we're going to dig into that today. And yet, despite everything that he lost... Despite what he used to be, he would preach Christ crucified up to his own martyrdom under Nero Caesar. So from this, we learn some valuable and encouraging lessons, and I want to read our passage and see what these are. So Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 25. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. The story of Saul is one that we almost take for granted. You know, we read this and okay, okay, this guy was a, he was a pretty big jerk, but he met Jesus and changed, so he became one of the good guys. That's great. Cool story. And I think the reason that we lose a little bit of this is we don't really get a ton of detail from Luke here. Saul's conversion is discussed in other places in Scripture. Um, In Acts, we'll see that later. He also writes of it in his epistles to the churches. And I'm not going to read all those texts this morning, but I will discuss what they teach. And first, we need to learn about a guy named Gamaliel. Saul was a student of his. History tells us that Gamaliel was one of, if not the most highly regarded rabbis in Judaism, at the time of this text being written, and for many years after the fact. And we first met Gamaliel during the examination of Peter and John in Acts chapter 5. He's the one who told the Sanhedrin that if these guys are not of God, they're going to fail, and if they are of God, we are not going to be able to stop them. Smart guy. He was lauded for his knowledge and for his wisdom. And what would happen is rabbis would take students who had intellectual promise and an ability to learn under their wings as their disciples. They would then teach them and invest in them, raising them up to be scholars, scribes, and even rabbis themselves. And Gamaliel is most famous for one of his disciples, Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as Paul the Apostle. In Acts 22, Paul explains that he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, meaning simply that he was one of his students and one of his most promising ones at that. Now under Gamaliel, Saul would have received the modern equivalent of at least one doctorate, probably more than one. And as a student of a man from such high esteem, he was all but guaranteed to be as highly regarded as Gamaliel himself. In the eyes of those in Judaism, Saul is a very rapidly rising star. And this was made all the more famous by his passion for obliterating the church. His reputation has preceded him in Damascus. Saul is on a scorched earth campaign right now. He's left Jerusalem to go north to Damascus to capture Christians there, bring them back to Jerusalem for trial, which would likely end in their imprisonment or their execution. But he never gets to accomplish his task. Because on the road, he'd meet Jesus and he would never be the same. Now, contrary to popular belief, Jesus did not change Saul's name to Paul. It was fairly common in ancient Rome to have two names. Paul was his Roman name, which he likely chose to be referred to over Saul because of its meaning. Paul, or Paulos in the Greek, literally means little or small. Now, contrast that with having the name of the first Israelite king from the tribe of Benjamin, a guy tall in stature and easy on the eyes, so on and so forth. And you can see why Paul, after being humbled, knocked to his face by the glory of the Lord, he chose to refer to himself as Paul rather than Saul, always being reminded of how little he is. So from here on out, I'm going to call him Paul because I think he would appreciate that. Now, his conversion story teaches us many encouraging and invaluable lessons about Christ and his church. I'm going to highlight two of these this morning. The first is this. Christ personally identifies with his people. So again, Paul on his way to Damascus to do what he has been doing in Jerusalem, persecuting the church. He's a man filled with hatred the likes of which you rarely see in history it's not at all out of the question to call him a terrorist like we did earlier verse one paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the lord went to the high priest the greek word for breathing here actually means to inhale there's a few different ways we can look at this first we can say that he was so consumed by his hatred for the church that he literally lived for it it was like air for him He'd been so steeped in hatred for the church to the extent that he breathed it in like oxygen. And what came out of him was threats and murder. So we learn from this an important truth. What goes into you is going to have an effect on what comes out of you. You breathe in hatred, you're going to exhale murder and threats. Secondly, and related, we have this image here almost of an angry animal. R.C. Sproul explains it like a bull right before it charges. It snorts and it kicks its hooves. It's angry and it's got one goal. It's going to kill whatever is in front of it. This is Paul before Jesus. Angry, violent, cruel, heartless. Few men had such a hard heart. But then he meets Christ. Verses 3 and 4. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, sometimes when we're praying for something, we we say that we want like a Damascus Road experience, right? We just want Jesus to show up and tell us, no, we don't. No, you don't. That's what happened to Paul. And he was instantly put on his face, this angry, violent proud, zealous man, when he meets Jesus, all of that just melts like wax, and down he goes. Imagine if you can, two realizations that he's just come to. Number one, Jesus isn't dead. He's alive, and I'm talking to him. The church people were actually right. The ones I'm trying to kill were right. Secondly, this Jesus is Lord He's God, and I am persecuting him. Paul's use of the word Lord here is not the usual term of respect. He uses the word kureos, the title given to God. So he knows exactly who he's talking to, and yet he asks him who he is. Now, that seems odd to us, but here's what that means. Paul has no idea who the God is that he's claimed to worship in an instant A lifetime of knowledge evaporates. This bold man who believed he was doing God a service, the moment Christ showed up, he was put on his face, and he realized instantly how wrong he was. In the blink of an eye, his whole life changed. It's entirely possible to have endless amounts of knowledge about God, but have no idea who God is. People do it all the time. So who is this? This God and this Savior. He's the head of the church. He's the Savior of the church. He's the Lord of the church. So intimately connected to His church that to persecute that church is to persecute Him. Those who would oppose and attack the people of God oppose and attack the head of those people. Christ. Now a few pieces we need to understand about this. Number one, This only applies when the persecution comes as the result of speaking the truth of his word and preaching his gospel. It is entirely possible to be persecuted for being a jerk. If you know anything about Westboro Baptist, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They deride, insult, and mock people. And I'm telling you the truth, that is not what Christ did. That is not what Christ did. And you can check me on that from the scriptures. People's dislike of them is not because they're strong in their faith. It's because they're cruel, heartless people who don't have a shred of love in them. The truth is a hard enough pill for people to swallow. We don't need to be cruel and heartless while we speak it. Secondly, Christ identifying so intimately with his people should humble us. It should humble us. And the reason it should is the same reason it humbled Paul. Because Christ didn't have to do that. Christ did not have to save us. He did not have to leave the endless and deserved praises of the heavenly host. He did not have to veil himself in and identify with weakened flesh. He did not have to shed his blood. He didn't have to do anything at all. He owed us nothing. Christ Jesus, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, who holds everything together by his word as we speak, willingly chose to identify with you and I in our weakness. We could never get to him, so he came to us. And here's where this hits exceptionally hard. Every Christian who has ever lived is a Saul. We're not all terrorists. But we resist God, we suppress the truth, we spurn his grace, we don't want anything to do with him sometimes. That's true for all of us before Jesus, and sadly, even after we accept Jesus, we still struggle with these things because of the human and sin nature that we have. We were, before Jesus, by nature, children not of God, but of wrath. It was Paul himself who said this in Ephesians 2.3 among whom you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul's telling the Ephesians, there was a point where you were no different than everybody else. And the only difference now is Christ. Yet despite what our nature was, and still is, Christ in his unending grace, love, and mercy identifies with us. He died for us, and now he identifies with us. There's no place in that for boasting. We have done nothing to earn the favor of God. He simply chose to bestow it upon us, and we would do well to not forget that. Philippians 2, 5-7, Paul says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The mind of Christ is one of humility and of service. It is to think less of ourselves and more of others. It is to worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's to identify with him because he willingly identified with us first. If in fact we have the mind of Christ, the truth that he identifies with us in our weakness will spark humility in us. He was born in our likeness yet retained his divinity, did not avail himself of it, willingly died on the cross. Nobody put Jesus there. He allowed himself to be put there. He took our sin upon himself, bore the full weight of it under the law. This is the son of God we're talking about. And he owes us nothing. But he gave us everything. Adopted us into his family and now identifies with us not just in our joys, but in our weaknesses, our sorrows, our persecutions, because he's experienced all of it. Christ is for you, church. He is yours and you are his. And the world may try to take that from you, but it cannot overcome him. If ever a person could have overcome The Lord Jesus Christ, it was Paul. He was unmatched in his zeal, but in the presence of Jesus, he crumbled and became nothing. In the presence of Jesus, everybody crumbles to nothing. When we meet Christ, we die and we're reborn. Christ identifying with us is not so that we can become proud or superior, but so we can be humbled and made to worship. That's what happened to Paul. That's what should happen to us. Simply put, this should encourage us greatly. Because the greatest and most powerful king of all eternity is for us and loves us intimately and passionately. But it should also put us in our place. Because we did not earn this. We did not merit this level of intimacy with the living God. He chose to show it willingly. So Christ personally identifies with his people first and secondly, Christ calls those he identifies with to do difficult work. How is that encouraging? As we dig into this, we're going to see Paul, but we're also going to meet somebody named Ananias. Both of them in their own right have something before them that is incredibly difficult. And Christ calls us to do work for his glory that we cannot do ourselves. As the saying goes, if it were easy, everybody would do it. And yet that's exactly the point. We don't do it in our own strength. We can't do it in our own strength. We are made to rely on this Savior who identifies with us. You know, and Paul, to say the least, is humbled, but we're already starting to see a change in him. This strong, bold, violent man has asked Christ what he wants, and he has to be led by the hand to the city. It's hard to imagine what's going through Paul's mind at this point, but for at least three days, he doesn't eat or drink. Now, this isn't punishment. It's not some sort of self-inflicted penance or something like that. But rather, this is the result of the intensity of his encounter and a part of his being humbled. We see something similar with Zechariah being struck mute after meeting the angel in the temple. These three days were for the purpose of reflection and seeking God in prayer. Paul has to process what has just happened. His whole life has just been flipped over. Before God uses us, he's going to humble us because it reminds us where the strength comes from. And it's not us. And having done that, he's going to then call us to do things that are beyond us in his strength and not our own. And take it from someone who knows, most times we won't do what God wants until he completely strips us of our pride. And here's where we meet Ananias, whom we could call an obscure, unsung hero of the scriptures, but also someone who maybe is perhaps a little arrogant. Arrogant how? Well, verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. God speaks, Ananias listens. In essence, he's saying, I'm here. What do you want from me, God? So far, we're off to a great start. But then things get a little more dicey. Verses 11-12. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias, that's you, coming and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight." I would pay good Christian money to see the look on his face right now. <laughs> God tells him what he wants, namely who he wants him to talk to. And he's like, you sure about that? Like, do you know who this is? Like, you know what he's done? You, you, you know this, right? Let's get this out of the way here. This is a remarkably arrogant thing to do. To correct the living God or act like you're telling him something he doesn't know. Additionally, just about everyone loves the idea of Jesus as long as he doesn't ask or require anything from us. Jesus is Savior, great. Jesus is Lord, mm, not so much because the Lord gets to tell you what to do. Now we might be tempted to pick on Ananias here until we realize we all do it. We live in a world that is in a constant state of change, seeking to redefine what God has defined and do what God has forbid. And and we do this without remorse and without shame. And as the church, we're called to speak the truth of the gospel into that. And that's difficult, right? Right? So we come up with all sorts of reasons why we can't. We don't want to be mean. We don't want to be rude, unkind. This person's too mean. He's too dangerous, whatever. So we end up fearing men more than God or inadvertently, we end up suppressing the truth ourselves. All this is at its core is is telling God he's wrong. And it's staggeringly arrogant to do so. And yet at some point, we've all done it. Thank God for his mercy. Understand this, God calls his people to do difficult work. As Ananias is telling God everything he doesn't know, I want you to note that God cuts him off with a single word, go. Verses 15 and 16, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias, I know who he is, I know what he's done, I have a plan and a purpose for him, get up and go. What we have here are two men who have been called by God for something very specific. But as we said earlier, each of those callings are difficult in their own right. Let's talk about Ananias first. God's work for him wasn't just to go and talk to Paul. I mean, that's obviously a part of it, but something has to happen before he gets to Paul. He has to forgive him. Let's camp on that for a minute. It's likely Ananias knew someone who suffered under Paul. As a result of his persecution and hatred with the church, he probably knew people who were killed, who were imprisoned, wives who were widowed, children who were orphaned, The the gravity of what God has just asked Ananias to do is really lost on us. It's not just talking to a dangerous guy. It's talking to a dangerous guy who's probably killed some of his friends. But what does he call him? Brother Saul. Somewhere between telling God no and informing God of all the things he didn't know, forgiveness has occurred. The name Ananias means God is great gracious god forgave paul ananias forgave paul god forgave ananias forgiveness is hard work it's hard especially when we have to forgive people who should know better or who we should be able to trust forgiveness is also an unsung work it's not gonna make front page news We don't hear from Ananias again after this. This is the one and only time we meet him. Some of the hardest things that God calls us to do, most people won't even know we did. And when God calls us to do things like that, here's what we have to ask ourselves. Whose glory am I in it for? Let me ask you a random question. Can you name the person who led D.L. Moody to Jesus? What about Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham, Jonathan Edwards, R.C. Sproul? We know these names, right? They're the theological giants of the last few centuries. But we don't know who led those giants to the Lord. You could find out with a little bit of research. But the point is, they are not household names like these. And I'd be willing to bet, if I was a gambler that they're okay with that. Because our job is to labor for the glory of God. We're building God's kingdom, not ours. We, if we need every good thing that we do for God to be known and to be appreciated by everyone, I got bad news. We're not laboring for God at that point. We're laboring for us, and that defeats the purpose. The whole book of Acts, as we have studied it, has been the restoring of the kingdom of God. That's done for the glory of God, not the glory of us. God calls his people to work for his glory, not ours. And we've seen time and time again this come up in Acts. Disciples, apostles, deacons being used by God, laboring for God for the express purpose of building his kingdom. And this is why they were willing to do so at great risk to themselves. It was something bigger than them. Part of the apostolic witness. Part of the reason why we can know that the gospel is true. Is because if I'm doing all this stuff for my own glory. And someone says they're going to kill me for it. I'm like oh you got me. Sorry. I was just messing around. It was a joke. Whatever. No. This is for God. And this is why people are willing to die. Because it's for God. Ananias is another example of someone who is willing to obey the Lord even to their own danger and detriment for the purpose of building his kingdom for his glory. But let's not forget Paul. He was going to suffer terribly for the sake of Christ. Stoned, left for dead, marked for death, shipwrecked, rejected, ridiculed, mocked, eventually martyred. Verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Following Christ, working for Christ, it always involves suffering. And I'm not telling you that to make you think that Christianity is just this lifetime of pain, drudgery, and suffering. But I need to make sure to point out that if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to obey Jesus, if you're going to obey his word, you're going to walk in opposition to this world. You have to. You can't be loyal to two opposing entities. Your labor for the Lord is going to involve opposing the world in some way because in every way, this world that we live in, that we are passing through, is opposed to the things of Christ. So if you follow Christ, if you preach Christ, you're going to face opposition. Case in point, Paul, verse 20. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he's the son of God. What a radical monumental change. That does not happen if he doesn't meet Christ. Immediately he's preaching that Jesus is the son of God. The very thing you'll remember that the Jewish leaders wanted to stone Jesus for saying. Before Abraham was, I am. And then they picked up rocks to stone him. Paul now says that very thing. And people are dumbfounded by that. But the more he does it, the more he confounds the Jews using the scriptures that all of them knew. For the first time, Paul sees scriptures as they were meant to be seen through the lens of Christ. And just as quickly as he does this, the men who used to be his colleagues want him dead. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. I'm reminded of the people that I met in Africa. People that they loved and admired, their families, their mothers, their children, turned on them on a dime without pity or remorse once they chose to follow Jesus. And for many of us, this is a a foreign concept. We don't really face that level of of sacrifice and persecution. But as the world becomes a darker place, this is going to become less foreign to us. Salvation is free, but being a disciple is costly. And yet the cost is always worth paying Because Christ is worth infinitely more. For Paul, following Jesus meant losing a lot. And how much exactly is lost on us. But imagine having the level of dedication he had. uh, I'm sorry, education he had. Multiple doctorates, right? Only to be told that because you're following Jesus, all of those are void. Imagine that for a minute. You spent... However many years, going to college, getting your undergraduate and your graduate work done, and then your next level of graduate, you're a doctor, you got DR. in front of your name, it's really cool. And then the college says, oh, you're following Jesus. Yeah, that's all void, but we're going to keep your money. A reputation destroyed. People knew Paul and he was well-respected and now they hate him and they want him dead. Imagine your friend your closest friend, someone maybe you work with or whatever, you decide to follow Christ and they go from being your friend, now they want you dead. A mentor lost. This would have brought so much dishonor on Gamaliel who would have likely had to renounce him in order to avoid that. So imagine someone you admired, someone who has mentored you. You come to Jesus and they renounce you and they want nothing to do with you. In fact, they even want you dead too. Paul lost everything. And yet he would say this in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Wow. Rubbish! Multiple doctorates, friends, mentors, colleagues, all of it. Rubbish! Compared to Christ. And that's how our mentality has to be. You stack up everything against Jesus. Everything in your life. Everything in the universe. Stars, planets, galaxies, whatever. You stack it up against Jesus and it means nothing. And it means nothing because he's worth infinitely more. To lose everything for the sake of Christ is to gain everything. There's nothing that we're ever going to lose. Including our lives that could compare with the worth of knowing Christ and being counted as one of his own. Now, I've talked a lot about the work God calls us to, and you might be asking, well, what work are we talking about here? I don't know specifically what it is for each one of us. We are all called to do the same thing, to preach Christ crucified and to make disciples. When we talk about what's God calling me to do, what we're really asking is what context does he want me to do that in? So I don't know what that is for you, but I know this. It will involve preaching Christ to a world that is hostile to that message. It will involve making sacrifices for the sake of Christ and his word. You will not be able to do any of that in your own strength. Which is why Christ has to first humble us. Every person in the scriptures that God has used, he humbled first. Abraham, Moses, David, the apostles, and back again. They all made great sacrifices, they all suffered, and they were all utterly reliant upon God. And that's why this is an encouraging lesson, because you're not doing this by yourself. This God who calls us to this difficult work has promised to never leave us and never forsake us. And he's a God that does not change. So that promise that he made thousands of years ago, he still keeps to this day because he does not break his promises. And yet, we don't get to a place where we can fully understand and realize that until we're broken of our pride first. Paul does not preach Christ if Christ doesn't humble him. So again, God acts, and then we respond. God calls, we answer. God chooses us, then we choose him. And this radical change that we see here in this passage is not meant to be taken as a once-only event. And what that means for you is it doesn't matter how far someone is from God. They are never beyond his reach. All of us were Paul at one point. All of us were Ananias, and yet here we are. Eternally secure, not because of any merit of our own, but solely because of his grace and his mercy, which we know are new each morning. So don't stop praying for that person that you have been praying for that seems to continually reject the gospel. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop speaking to them about Christ. Do not lose heart. Do not grow weary. Because we learn from Paul's conversion that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And if God can change this man, God can change any man. Christ is yours. You are his. Nothing in all of heaven, hell, or earth is ever going to separate you from him. He identifies with you. He loves you. He knows your hurts. He knows your sorrows. He knows the people you're concerned for. Do not lose heart. Do not give up. So I've titled today's message, Encouraging Lessons from Saul's Conversion. We looked at Acts 9, 1-25, and we saw two lessons that are encouraging and valuable for us as disciples of Christ. First, Christ personally identifies with his people. And secondly, Christ calls those that he identifies with, to do difficult work, and yet we do not do it alone. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, the first and most important thing that you are called to is to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. The good news of the gospel is that we have all sinned against the holy God. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As a result of that, God is justifiably wrathful towards our sin. And yet in that very same verse, we see why the gospel is good news. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood because of Christ and his cross. His death satisfies God's wrath against the sin of those who would repent and believe his gospel. You have sinned against God. I don't care who you are. And if that's offensive, I'm sorry, but it's the truth. It's true for all of us. And we need to know that and we need to hear that before we can really receive and understand. We see that with Paul. Paul doesn't change if he isn't confronted with a very harsh truth. And it's the same for all of us. Before we can really receive the gospel and repent, we have to be confronted with the truth that the gospel is necessary because we sinned. And yet if we will do this, if we will admit that we have sinned and we will believe that Jesus died on the cross in our place, we will be saved. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart. But I want you to notice that you can't confess to something that you don't believe. You have to believe that this is true. You have to believe that you sin. And you have to believe that God can save you in Christ. And if you're willing to do this, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 13, will be saved. This is the gospel. And if you don't know Christ, this is the truth that you need to hear. And if you would like to receive Christ as Lord and Savior or talk more about this, I encourage you to speak with me afterwards. I'm going to head down to Fellowship Hall like everybody else Come and talk to me. I'll stop everything I'm doing to to speak with you. This is important. This is an eternally important truth that I'm telling you right now. And my hope and my prayer, if you don't know Christ, is that you would meet him today in the saving sense. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward. We're going to close our time of worship and prayer and song. Will you stand with me as we do so? If you're visiting, thank you so much for coming. But the offering is for those who call Green River Bible Church their home church. So we don't ask you to give, but we would love if you would join us in prayer and in song. Let's pray together. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. God, that you identify with us in our pain and our suffering, our sorrows and our persecution, that you are never far from us, Lord, that you will never leave us and never forsake us, that you have taken up residence in our hearts. Lord, we know that you call us to do things that are beyond us and we thank you for that, God, because if we could do it in our own strength, we'd just brag about it. Father God, I pray that you would empower us by this Holy Spirit whom you have given us to do that which you have called us to do as individuals and as a church to make disciples, to preach Christ crucified, that the gospel would be evident in our lives, that we would, the people would see it come out of us, not just in our words but in our deeds and in our heart, Lord. May everything that we do bring glory to the name of Christ for he alone is worthy. So we commit these things to you for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord together.